I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week, we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on daily life, so that together, you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. Well, we've begun our yearly 40-day pilgrimage toward the resurrection, towards Easter. As we spend these 40 days in a time of prayer and fasting and almsgiving, in preparation for, uh, to make our hearts ready uh, to receive the risen Christ. We, we walk through this valley of the shadow of death so that we can fully appreciate uh, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We subjugate our own desires, our own appetites, and uh, we do that because we need to teach ourselves that we can't rely on our appetites. As an example, my children, uh, they, they, they swear to me that they're starving. <laughs> Their appetites tell them that if they don't have food right now, and th- th- then they're going to, to die. And as, a, as an adult, as the, the one who's lived a little bit longer, I can look at them and say, you are not on the verge of starvation. You, you haven't eaten for like two hours. You're going to be fine. <laughs> but isn't that so true that, that we have our own appetites as adults, that we're just absolutely positive that if we don't meet that need right now, it's going to kill us. And so that's why we have this Lenten fast each year so that we can uh, spend a little bit of time reminding ourselves that our appetites will lie to us, that our desires will lie to us uh, in order to get what, what, what we want. And so the church invites us and calls us in this season of Lent to deny ourselves and to fix our eyes a little bit more intently on Christ, to look at those desires and those appetites that we most of the time don't even think about. We just immediately give in to them. Uh, and, and the church says, hold off just a little bit longer this time as a reminder to our flesh that our spirit also needs to be fed. Now, of course, I'm not talking about uh, abstaining from from sin in this uh, season, because really we're supposed to abstain from sin all the time. As we give up things for Lent, we're not giving up those vices that we shouldn't be doing. We're giving up those things that aren't so much vices, but they are not helping us proceed and grow in virtue. So that could be uh, giving up some screen time and spending less time in front of, of the television or in front of uh, a smartphone or a distraction or whatever that may be, and replacing that with, uh, with some dedicated time in prayer, whether that be Lexio Divina or the Liturgy of the Hours or just extemporaneous prayer where you spend some time focused on God. Uh, for you, it may be giving up extra food. There are uh, the early church, uh, and really even some of churches today, the fast is rather rigorous. That you, you know, the reason we called it Fat Tuesday, coming in before Ash Wednesday, is because that's the day that you would use up all the fat, uh, the milk and the eggs and the the dairy and any other thing that you had, you would use that up because the the Lenten fast was a, a vegan fast. You would have no meat and no animal byproducts either, uh, and so the church in in her compassion looks at us who are weak and frail and says, you know what, here is what is required. You need to do something that will remind you uh, to, to deny yourself, 
during this season of Lent. You need to do something. But the church understands that some people uh, have health issues that don't allow them to have such a rigorous fast. And so the church kind of backs away from what is required. But uh, maybe this is something about American Christianity. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's something about human nature. We tend to say, oh, well, this is what's required. And so this is what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to do this much because that's what is laid out in the rubrics. And so I'm going to abstain from meat on Fridays, and I'm going to uh, fast on on Ash Wednesday and on Good Friday. And and then maybe I'll give up uh, something uh, token, uh, and because you have to give up something for Lent, and, and then call that good. But the church gives the requirement, understanding that there are people who really cannot go uh, to an extreme degree in their fasting. But this doesn't mean that that's what the church asks of us. The church asks of us to make a very intentional offering of ourself, denying ourself uh, good things, denying ourselves uh, certain benefits or certain appetites we may have, so that we can, every time we hunger for those things, we can think, oh, yeah, I'm fasting. And rather than grumbling about it, Every time we think about that thing that we love, that we, uh, that's a habit for us, we turn our attention then to Christ. The reason that, one of the reasons I think that we fast, one of the reasons that I fast is because I notice when I'm fasting how often I turn to that thing, whether it be a computer screen or whether it be, uh, you know, I've given up sodas several years, and I notice how much more often my mind turns to prayer because I desire that other thing. And, and it goes to show how much I have depended on that thing to bring me some measure of comfort. And Christ says during this season that he wants to be the thing that I depend on. He wants to be the thing that I turn to immediately for comfort. And not all of these other appetites that I have gotten so used to and that I have coddled And so here we are in the season of Lent. We have the opportunity to identify those things that we depend on and to release them to God so that we can fully and totally depend upon him. So I encourage you, absolutely do what the church has asked of you. Uh, Abstain from meat on Fridays, uh, fast on on Ash Wednesday and, uh, and on Good Friday, but do something more. Challenge yourself just a little bit. Find something that you've depended upon and give it up. Give it to God and then turn to him to meet those needs that have been met by whatever other thing has been filling that. If you still don't know what your Lenten devotion is yet, remember there's that great book from Reverb Culture. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. You can go to ReverbCulture.com slash meditations book, type in OTW show and get 20% off of that. We did give one of those away. Peter Hilger, who listens on St. Michael Radio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was the winner of that. Join the ongoing conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Don't go anywhere. we got a great show for you today. We're going to talk with Father Peter Mangum about the Shroud of Turin as we examine the passion of Christ and what he endured for our sake. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today here we are just about to, to have the first Sunday in Lent. I hope that your Ash Wednesday was, uh, was productive and fruitful, and uh, I want to know what your, your devotion is this Lenten season. Why don't you come over to social media and tell me, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Uh, this Lenten season here on the show, we're going to be taking a really good look at relics. Uh, we've got a couple of episodes where we're, we're going to be addressing that, starting today where we're speaking with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport, Louisiana. And we're going to be talking about the Shroud of Turin. Uh, they've got a podcast that just came out yesterday, their first episode of it, where they're, they're examining and exploring uh, all things related to the Shroud of Turin. So, Father Peter, thank you for being on the show today. Very happy to be here, Timothy. Now, I, you've always been kind of my go-to uh, person when I have interesting questions about the faith, even from before I was Catholic. Uh, you, you're my first cousin, and you were an instrumental part uh, in bringing me into the faith just because of the way you uh, intentionally live out the gospel. And one of the things that um, I n- noticed from my growing up years, uh, I went to seminary and I got a postcard, a Protestant seminary, and I got a postcard from from Bo, from my cousin, and it said, congratulations on seminary. Maybe one day we'll call you Father Tim. <laughs> and, and I looked at that, and I'm like, that, that's, that's never going to happen. But what you did uh, is that you always found ways to plant seeds of curiosity and interest and turn the conversation to places and, uh, uh, and matters of faith. And you're doing that with your parish right now, with the, the Cathedral Parish of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport. Uh, you've just now acquired a full-size replica of the shroud, and you're doing a, a number of studies around the shroud, and it, it's caught the attention of the community. I, I saw on Facebook there was um, a, a news story where the, the news station came in in a very non-Catholic area, uh, they came in and had a conversation with you and, and put that up on their evening news. Uh, talk a little bit about that experience. Well, indeed, there has been much interest in the whole topic of the Shroud of Turin, though this is an area with less than uh, 4%, fewer than 4% uh, Catholics. Uh, we nonetheless have a very good, strong Christian base here, and everyone is very familiar with what we read in sacred scripture, that there were linens in the empty tomb. And so what we, of course, would call one of those linens the Shroud of Turin. So as soon as, as, soon as people started hearing about the podcast that, that we just launched and the, um, the, the nice 14-and-a-half-foot a replica, because of the, that's, the, the, that's the length of the strip of linen cloth of, of the actual shroud. Well, yes, uh, but plenty of people are interested. And in fact, since that very first one that you saw, there has been now a second. And the secular press has picked up on it. And before too long, we plan on putting digital billboards around this city with the actual image of the shroud and inviting people not only of the Catholic faith, but anyone interested in finding out more and more about the Shroud itself. So, so <clears throat> if I can put it this way, the Shroud is an unbelievably great evangelical tool. And by that, I mean you can speak so much about the gospel just by looking at this 
piece of cloth. Now, of course, for us, it's a replica. It's an, an ex- exact replica, 14 and a half feet by three feet. It bears that mysterious um, pale-colored image of a man. It's faintly visible on the cloth, but but as I think everyone is familiar with, that negative photography um, reveals such uh, such detail not visible to the naked eye. I mean, uh, it's it's quite interesting, and um, I look forward to telling you even more about it. You know, uh, there are some of these objects that are just, you mentioned it's unbelievably good at sharing the gospel. There are some of these objects that we have in our faith that that are simply uh, unbelievable. It's hard to fathom them. So, for instance, for me, one of them is the the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. here, Mm. Here you have a beautiful image that that art historians and, and, and people who have studied it, they can't recognize any style. It's, it's not painted. It's somehow impressed with, with a method that human hands have not been able to reproduce. Uh, and and they, they say this is of divine origin. And here with the shroud as well, uh, you have those who would look at it and say, oh, well, of course, that's a, a medieval forgery. But there's a number of things within the shroud. First of all, uh, the method by which the image came to be imprinted is is unrecognizable. And ir- uh, really, while you have uh, a, uh, a replica, it's, it's different because this is reproducible. And we could look at that replica and we could uh, examine it and say, oh, well, this is how that was made. Whereas we look at the shroud and it it looks to be of divine origin, that there's no way that a, a human person, much less a human person in the medieval period, could have created that image. So talk a little bit for that person who may be skeptical of the image and think of it just as a devotional item. Talk about uh, how this image was was created, how, how it is that this could be something of divine origin. Well, one of the individuals who was a part of the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978, Barry Schwartz is his name, um, he's actually coming to the cathedral in March, and we'll, we'll give a presentation to anyone who wants to, to hear him speak. But he, 40 years ago, a devout Jew, so he is going there only because of his unbelievably great uh, photography skills. So he, he's going there. At first he doesn't want to go, but then he, he says, okay, I'm going to go, and most likely within 10 minutes I'm going to see how this is a forgery, this is a painting. Well, even he acknowledged immediately how stunned he was because there, there are no pigments, there are no dyes, there, there, there's nothing, there are no brush strokes, there, there's nothing at all whatsoever to indicate that this is a painting. Well, because it is not a painting. It is indeed unbelievably mysterious, to, to use the word you used a moment ago, um, a mysterious strip of linen cloth. I mean, it pushes the limits of our of our human imagination, our our capacity for knowledge. Uh, what I'm hoping is that it will invite us to deeper inquiry, deeper reflection um, uh, with regards to who is the man of the shroud. And, and we can say that it's not only Jesus, a man, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that, that's how we are uh, proceeding with our presentations all about the shroud, there has been so much interest, and it includes from those who do tend to be on the skeptical side. So, for example, those who are uh, not Catholic and also those who are Catholic who are just like, well, I just don't quite 
get it. Plus, uh, I have 700 school kids here on this block, and <laughs> right. uh, a number of the um, high schoolers tend to ask even more questions, and they, they, I'm, I'm trying to teach them all about it before we have this internationally known guest speaker coming here so that they can ask some really good, intelligent questions. But they, they too, are really grappling with the notion that this is a divinely made, not made by human hands, image. And even in the earliest of our history, and I'm talking about just a couple of centuries after the death of our Savior, um, uh, even in the Greek language, uh, they were calling it uh, by the name uh, that, that is not made by human hands, not made by, by man. In other words, it is divine. It, is, um, it was something that was rep- recognized so early on as having been divine. And just imagine the countless number of pilgrims having gone and seen the faint image that we see on the shroud today, who never even had a clue as to what the negative would look like. Right. People who say that this is a medieval forgery, well, um, there's so much that just mitigates against that. For example, there was no photography. There were uh, the, the, no pollen uh, studies, which uh, in just the last several decades, uh, for example, Dr. Max Fry was able to, to go and examine and extract from the shroud itself pollen and was able to determine any number of, of little pollen um, granules that only come from ancient Palestine, from the Middle East, from right there in the Jerusalem area. Well, if this is a forgery from the Middle Ages, uh, from France, um, then how on earth did someone even think about putting pollen there that they didn't even know existed right. and would be very identifiable to a specific region? There are just so many things like that, Timothy, that, that I can uh, point to. I, all I can say is that the Shroud of Turin, uh, very similar to Our Lady of Guadalupe, as you mentioned, but the Shroud of Turin is the most studied object in all of history. I mean, uh, I mean, and from every single academic discipline. Right. Uh, I, I'm talking about uh, some of my studies of this have 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 shown me all about the physics of it, the uh, side of medicine, forensics, botany, as I mentioned. Um, Hematology, history, photography—it's—it's—it's um, uh, it's like the, the more you you uh, look into it and study it, the more you the, the more uh, questions that are that, that come about. So, so so that's why we feel that a podcast series would be very good because we can one um, um, take one aspect of the shroud. And offer a, you know, like an eight to 10 minute podcast. It's not going to be long. It's going to be easy enough for anyone to listen to in a, a brief amount of time. But we'll give them a, a, a really good um, 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 summary of one of the details. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's an object of great devotion. Uh, and yet it's not just an object. It's not just any artifact. We believe it was a relic of the resurrection itself. If you're just joining us, we're talking today with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's. One of the things I'm fascinated with about the Shroud is the amount of uh, 
the more that we study it, the more that we use uh, cutting-edge techniques, the more it reveals to us uh, not only about its own authenticity, but about the process of the crucifixion, about what Christ himself went through uh, in his body, uh, the, the, the way that it affected uh, humanity, his humanity. Uh, and to look at it, you know, some people say, as, as we mentioned, that they think it's a medieval forgery. And yet if you look at medieval uh, imagery of the crucifixion and then you look at the shroud, uh, you see a completely different image where in the shroud you see the nail prints in the wrist instead of the hand. Uh, you, you see just a whole host of things that would point to it not being related to the medieval conception of what uh, the passion was. Absolutely. That's an, a great point because in the Middle Ages, everyone was painting the crucifixion scene with the nails in the hands. Mm-hmm. If this were indeed a forgery, why on earth would they have depicted the wound in the wrist? Well, obviously, we don't believe it to be a medieval forgery. It was original, and a crucifixion would have taken place in the wrist in order for the weight of a, of a human body yeah. to be able to, uh, to be held up on there. We're talking today with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport, Louisiana. We're talking about the Shroud of Turin as we meditate on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his passion and his death as we traverse together this Lent. Join the ongoing conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. But don't go anywhere because there's much more to come right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. Today, we're talking with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, about their new podcast just came out yesterday, Who is the Man of the Shroud? Uh, Talking about the Shroud of Turin. You can get that by going over to sjbcathedral.org, or you can also find it right there on iTunes or whatever your podcast aggregator happens to be. Uh, Father Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be back. So let's talk uh, about how you first became interested, not just in in meditating on the Shroud and your own uh, personal devotion, but but in creating uh, the opportunity for others to do the same with uh, the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud that you've become affiliated with uh, and th- this podcast that you're doing and, and any other way that you are currently involved in Shroud research. Well, my interest in producing a podcast has been spurred by attendance to two very significant gatherings of shroud scholars from around the world. So just about six months ago, I was in Washington State, uh, the International Conference on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, 29 countries were represented there. And and, I mean, people who were speaking represented 29 Mm -hmm. countries. It was a huge gathering uh, with distinguished scholars. I mean, I felt really very much out of place, uh, except for the fact that as a person of faith, I'm able to, to speak about the shroud, especially from uh, what it tells us about the gospel, what it tells us about our Savior. And I've been able to learn so much about the Shroud and all the different elements and, 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 and science that goes into it. So here 
a shroud of Turin. I've heard about it my entire life. While I was studying in Rome uh, in 1988, that was the year that the whole carbon-14 dating um, um, uh, test had been done and came back uh, with with the approximate dates being somewhere in like 1290 to 1340, something like uh-huh. that. And and I, I remember still, even though I heard that, I was like, no, nah, that can't be right. <laughs> so so even that, I was more skeptical about that. And indeed, it's so interesting. I mean, there, there's so many other uh, scientific tests that have been done that show its authenticity. Unfortunately, everyone kind of seems to, to only look to the uh, 1988 carbon dating um, right. uh, test. It, it's really unfortunate that that test was done uh, with the fragments taken from the shroud where they took it from. I mean, I, let me just say it in as simple terms as this. I don't know that they could have chosen a a worse place on the shroud to take these little um, uh, examples, of the, the, these fragments, uh, because it was up in, in a corner that had been damaged, that had been repaired, that have, um, it's clearly evident that there are not only uh, linen uh, uh, threads there, but also new cotton threads that were added after the the big fire that, that had damaged uh, the shroud. Um, so, and that's in the 15, uh, excuse me, in, in the 1300s. Right. Uh, anyways, the, uh, I've done further studies at the Shroud Center in Colorado, um, and uh, Dr. Cheryl White, she is not only a, a parishioner, uh, but a an associate history professor in the LSU system, uh, Louisiana State University system, and um, as a person of faith, but also a person of history, uh, she and I are able to take a look at the Shroud from the very beginning, uh, evidence in the first centuries, all the way through to today. In fact, let me tell you this. Uh, this is um, well, like the first time I'm, I'm really <laughs> saying this, but Ooh, we get a scoop. Uh, we will be going to the Vatican secret archives in April. We were given opportunity to, to be there for three days to study some 13th century manuscripts, very wow. specific to the years from 1204 when the shroud was last mentioned and uh, as being in... Constantinople, and and then it was picked up again. It, it's its history, uh, its place in history in 1347 in Lyre, France. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure out these missing years. And so uh, she and I are going to go and look at some documents that haven't been viewed in, in several centuries, uh, and certainly look forward to that and reporting back any of the information uh, that, that we find. Mm-hmm. It's, so it's an unbelievable. Um, uh, beautiful, uh, like I said, instrument of evangelization. Mm-hmm. But, but the main reason is because we obviously believe in its authenticity. It is the burial shroud of our Savior. So let's talk a little bit about uh, how how it came to be, because we we see that it it, it showed up there in in France in the uh, in the Middle Ages. Uh, but here we, you know, we at my parish we have a. a small little sliver, this relic of the true cross, uh, this piece of wood that is purported to be, and we believe it to be, uh, a piece of the cross on, on which uh, Christ died. And here we have this this actual 
what we believe to be the actual burial, burial cloth of Christ. Uh, what was it about the, the early church that sought to, to reclaim and preserve these uh, from the earliest centuries? And, and then how do they then come to us through their hand? Sacred Scripture speaks in terms of, of, of linens in the burial tomb, in the empty tomb. We just do not at all believe that the apostles, that Mary Magdalene, that anyone involved with our Savior would have just left any of these um, uh, um, elements of the crucifixion uh, behind, that they would have gathered it together, that they would have brought it. Uh, there's some... Uh, evidence that the shroud was taken very early on to Edessa. And Edessa was a place where King Abgar V uh, was reigning, but he had leprosy. And all of this is part of historical fact. Mm-hmm. And, and it is that there are some documents that indicate that uh, what we would call an apostle uh, named Jude uh, went up there with a shroud in such a way so that King Abgar could venerate it, touch it, and be cured hmm. by this uh, touching of the shroud. So, so we believe that, that the shroud made its way to Edessa, um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, ultimately to Constantinople, but there's also other evidence that shows that it was also in Antioch. Um, so wh- where, where would a Christian have taken a shroud. Well, once Christians are persecuted in Jerusalem, that they would have gone to other centers uh, of the Christian faith, and indeed Antioch being one of them. Right. Um, there's some speculation that it would have gone to Rome as well, but a lot of those, a lot of that is indeed purely speculation. Right. Um, so, so the the early years and the d- depictions that we have of a um, of some type of a cloth with an image uh, of, of, of Jesus's face on it. It just it seems awfully interesting, strange that uh, people would just come up with this idea on their own. Mm-hmm. We believe that no, indeed, the, the, the cloth was available. The apostles would have taken it, and there's also evidence that that point to the fact that this could have actually have been a tablecloth. Hmm. as in the cloth that would have been used at the Lord's Supper. They had to grab a cloth that they had just, that they had on them, right. and this would have been something that they would have had. You can imagine, so uh, Jesus, uh, they, they take his lifeless body off of the cross. Now, and of course, remember, um, uh, he, had, he had been stripped of his clothing. Right. And it had been raining. Remember the storm that hit? So certainly a good amount of blood and dirt would have uh, washed off of him. But they take his body off of the cloth, and the first thing they do is put him in what we call the shroud and, and, and then wrap it, with, so, so wrap it around his body, but then uh, across the side of his body, put some other straps just to hold the whole um, linen shroud in place. And remember, they had to do all this in haste. Uh, the, 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 they wouldn't have just carried the body. Uh, the, the, they would have wrapped it in something and took it to uh, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the women were going to come back later to anoint the body and take care of it to prepare for proper burial. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's all just uh, just amazingly fascinating as you look at this this uh, this object to to see how it really opens up to us the picture of the passion, and that, of course that's what we're doing during Lent. Uh, every Friday we have the Stations of the Cross. We have the opportunity to meditate on these final hours of Christ, and here the Shroud offers us another opportunity. I love that that and I've heard that before, but I love that picture of. Uh, finding whatever cloth was available and getting that cloth from the Last Supper with a few wine stains on it and now also the blood of Christ and this Eucharistic imagery, uh, even in this this image of Christ in the Shroud. And as far as someone making this thing up, it's not like they had another uh, thing to go off of where there would be other images on cloth. Oh, well, yeah, I've got a great idea. We'll, we'll say that this image on the cloth is Christ. No, it, this wasn't a, an image that was made by the process of decay uh, or even simply by the process of the blood of the wounds. Rather, this was an image, we believe, and, and science seems to, uh, to, have, to back this up in so far as it can. Uh, this seems to be an image that was made by the power of the resurrection itself. Uh, talk a little bit about what, what science says about how the image was made. Well, nowadays we have nuclear physicists taking a look at the shroud. Mm-hmm. It, it's quite unbelievable. I mean, so each, think of, so, so you have a thread and each fiber of the thread and in each fiber, there are 200 fibrils in each fiber. The image itself is on the top portion of those fibrils of a fiber all the way, equally distributed, all the way across the, the, the shroud. So the, the, there's, there's no indication of, as I said earlier, any, any pigments, any dyes, anything that, that would have soaked into the actual cloth itself. It's all very, uh, not just superficial, but on the top, superficial, superficial. I mean, uh, it, it, and it's even all the way across. And another interesting element is that there is that there's there's nothing of the image underneath any of the blood stains. In other words, the blood would have had to have been put there first. Hmm. And that's indeed what happened with the actual uh, burial and then resurrection. The blood was there first, and then the image came. If it were some medieval forgery, someone would have had to uh, 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 splatter the uh, blood in the exact anatomically correct places, and then... Uh, figured out how to somehow put an image uh, on the top fibrils equally distributed, perfectly anatomically correct. So what we believe is that there was somehow, and this is what the nuclear physicists are talking about, not just priests gathered and, and, and chatting about the shroud. Nuclear physicists are talking about somehow this burst of radiation at the very moment of the resurrection. And, I mean, I, I can't help but think of that scene and the in the famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, um, where all of a sudden it's, it, it, it's, there's the shroud, and then, then it just kind of floats down because, boom, all of a sudden the body's gone. We're talking today with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport, Louisiana. Happens to be my cousin, which means there's a lot more to this conversation that didn't make it into the episode. But we've got extra segments available if you go over to OutsideTheWalls.com and click that Patreon link. Join the conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. And there's more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with Timothy Putnam.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. We've been talking today with Father Peter Mangum, rector of the Cathedral of St. John Berkman's in Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, we've been talking about the Shroud of Turin. They, they have just now installed a full-size replica of the Shroud of Turin there at the cathedral and have a, a whole um, exhibit surrounding the Shroud that's going to be made available coming up real soon here in March, uh, as well as they're bringing in a, a speaker uh, who's been a part of the research on the Shroud from the 70s. So it's going to be a great time. If you live anywhere near Shreveport, Louisiana, go to sjbcathedral.org and look into these upcoming events. If, if you're within driving distance, this is something you're going to want to catch. We mentioned earlier on the show that Father Peter is my first cousin, and so he was very instrumental in helping me journey into the Catholic faith. And he did so very laid back. Uh, he didn't, you know, he, he wasn't antagonistic, uh, but he was also, he was a little sneaky. He found ways to plant seeds of the faith uh, in my mind that would kind of needle at me and make me research a little bit. Uh, and, you know, he waited for a very long time to see the fruit of that, uh, but he was never impatient. And a lot of times when we, we, when we want to bring someone into the faith and we want to have conversations with them and we want to show them the rightness of Catholicism, uh, we can get a little bit too tense and a little bit too antagonistic and we're too busy showing someone where they're wrong rather than inviting them into the rightness of the faith. And so he never did that. He, he didn't ever tell me where what I believed was wrong. He only told me what he loved about Catholicism. And, and that ultimately is what won me over. So if you happen to be in a situation where you have a loved one who's not in the church and you so desperately want them to be in the church, just be a witness to the good, the beautiful, and the true. You don't have to point out uh, what necessarily is lacking anywhere else just point to the, the sufficiency of the Catholic faith. Uh, that's, that's for free. That has nothing to do with today's topic. Uh, now, if you, if you know anything about cousins, we can get talking. And we did talk. Uh, and there's a, a couple of those answers we had to cut short just to make them fit in uh, the conversation on, on air here. But I have them in their entirety in an extra segment for all of those people who support the show on Patreon. So if you want uh, a little bit extra about the Shroud of Turin, I invite you. Come over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and for as little as $5 a month, you get four extra episodes every month. And then if, if we have a month with five, uh, five shows, then you get five. And we have extra segments from each episode from each of our guests. Uh, including today's uh, about the Shroud of Turin. So go take a look at that and see how you can help support the show and, and help us continue to bring this kind of content to you week in and week out. Let's go ahead. As always, we want to turn our attention to a reading from Scripture and from church history. Our reading from Scripture today is going to tie back into our topic because just as we've been meditating on the Shroud of Turin, which really is the, the, as the burial cloth of Jesus tells the story of his suffering, of his passion, of his crucifixion and his death. So today's gospel, coming from the gospel of Luke, is going to call us uh, to, to follow that same path as Jesus walked. And Jesus says to his disciples, The Son of Man must suffer greatly and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What profit is there for one to gain the whole world, yet lose or forfeit himself? That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, and it challenges that notion that Christianity is just some self-help program, that if, if only if only we accept Jesus into our life, then everything will be made better. Here, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow me, you have to be ready to die. And not the romanticized death that we picture that the martyrs have. No, the long, slow death of daily denying ourselves, of looking to those appetites and those desires that we have that Christ wants to remove from us and saying, not today. Today, I'm going to, to follow Christ instead of this, this insatiable desire I have to do X, Y, Z. One of my favorite passages of Scripture comes from uh, the book of Colossians, uh, chapter 3. And it talks about, since we have been raised with Christ, put to death those things in us that aren't like him. Right. Put to death anger and malice and envy, and the list goes on. And it says, clothe yourselves with compassion and tenderheartedness. And, and it goes through that whole list. And, you know, it, it's, it, we have these pictures, just like Peter, who said, I'll, Jesus, I'll follow you to the death. But the death that he had envisioned was a very different death than the one that Christ had envisioned for him. Because there in the garden when Judas came up and kissed him, uh, Peter drew his sword. Man, he was willing to go down in a blaze of glory. But that's not what Christ wanted. Christ invited him to go down in all humility. And so we have to let go of our pride. We have to walk in virtue and grow in humility and die to ourself Oh, all of our passions and appetites and desires and proclivities and inclinations on a daily basis. Because what does it what does it profit us if we're if we're able to win that battle in the garden, right? Pulling our sword like Peter, but then we lose our soul because of it. And so here in Lent, Christ calls us to walk his passion with him, to take up our cross and journey alongside him that road to Golgotha just just like Simon of Cyrene, carrying our crosses as he carries his. But there's good news, and that good news is that this is not something that we do on our own. Today's reading from Church History comes from a commentary on the Psalms by St. Augustine. Hear, O God, my petition. Listen to my prayer. Who is speaking? An individual, it seems. See if it is an individual. I cried to you from the ends of the earth while my heart was in anguish. Ah, now it is no longer one person. Rather, it is one in the sense that Christ is one, and we are all his members. What single individual can cry from the ends of the earth? The one who cries from the ends of the earth is none other than the Son's inheritance. It was said to him, Ask of me, and I shall give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. This possession of Christ, this inheritance of Christ, this body of Christ, this one church of Christ, this unity that we are, cries from the ends of the earth. 
What does it cry? What I said before. Hear, O God, my petition. Listen to my prayer. I cried out to you from the ends of the earth. That is, I made this cry to you from the ends of the earth. That is, on all sides. Why did I make this cry? While my heart was in anguish, the speaker shows that he is present among all the nations of the earth in a condition not of exalted glory, but of severe trial. Our pilgrimage on earth cannot be exempt from trial. We progress by means of trial. No one knows himself except through trial, or receives a crown except after victory, or strives except against an enemy or temptations. The one who cries from the ends of the earth is in anguish, but is not left on his own. Christ chose to foreshadow us who are his body by means of his body, in which he has died, risen, and ascended into heaven, so that the members of his body may hope to follow where their head has gone before. He made us one with him when he chose to be tempted by Satan. We have heard in the gospel how the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Certainly, Christ was tempted by the devil. In Christ, you were tempted, for Christ received his flesh from your nature, but by his own power gained life for you. He suffered insults in your nature, but by his own power gained glory for you. Therefore, he suffered temptation in your nature, but by his own power gained victory for you. If in Christ we have been tempted, in him we overcome the devil. Do you think only of Christ's temptations and fail to think of his victory? See yourself as tempted in him, and see yourself as victorious in him. He could have kept the devil from himself, but if he were not tempted, he could not teach you how to triumph over temptation. That reading comes from a commentary on the Psalms by St. Augustine. And so you and I were invited to pick up our cross and to follow Christ through this road of suffering, through this road of laying down our own appetites and our own desires and being able to say along with Christ to God the Father, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done, right? We're called to offer ourselves humbly to God. And yet, we're also called to victory. We're called to that victory that comes from being united with God the Father. And so this Lenten observance that we are all a part of right now is not something that we just muscle ourselves through or pull up our own bootstraps so that we can make our way through it. No, we rely on the grace given to us by Christ's redeeming work on the cross. We rely on Christ all the more as we let go of our attachments to the things of this earth. That's all the time we have for today. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. Today's show is made possible by Carl and Kristen Friend and all the others who support the show through Patreon. Go over to outsidethewalls.com, click that Patreon link and see how you can join their numbers and get cool stuff in the process. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.